Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Breaches of payment systems are extremely serious. It's a great way not only to have major business problems, but to look like an idiot in front of all of your clients while causing them all kinds of headaches, including potentially emptying their bank accounts. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the requirements of PCI DSS compliance that are required for processing credit card transactions in the United States. While overseas, you'll find different standards, most of these are really best practices disguised as standards. But before we get started, Will, what's been processing you lately? Well, I'm about to get processed tomorrow. I'm uh, going to your mom's old office to get an MRI on my knee. Oh, fun. Uh, yeah, so I went to the doctor last Tuesday, I think. And you know, it's like, hey, I'm having some pain. It's unstable. Feels like it's gonna snap and drop me down the stairs when I go downstairs. And the doctor, you know, listened to my symptoms and then poked me in the knee, and it hurt so bad. I mean, you know, it takes a lot of pain to even move me. Mm-hmm. You're well aware of that. Like this, I mean, I just about jumped off the table. Yeah, Will Will does have a pretty high pain tolerance, y'all. I've I've put him in some like different arm locks, and he can take a lot. Yeah, but this was just, I mean, it was, and it was just a poke on my knee. And I mean, it, it really hurt. So I went, uh, you know, he gave me the business card for Tennessee Orthopedic Alliance. And I went down there, got an x-ray and then talked to a doctor. And, you know, the doctor basically wanted to get me scheduled for an MRI. So I'm doing that tomorrow. And then Friday, I'm going back to the doctor to figure out what has to be done about this. Um, so I, I can't, like, it doesn't hurt real bad unless I do a lot. But, you know, like um, Sunday night, I made this Nigerian chicken stew. It's really good. Took a a long time to cook. And after walking around like that, I mean, I woke up seven or eight times during the night with my knee hurting and having to like shift positions. And that's, uh, it's a bummer. So, yeah, I'm about to go get fixed up, whatever that costs. So how about you? Speaking of things getting fixed. Yeah. So um, (laughs) I am stranded at home. I mean, I made it back from uh, from all of my travels, and then uh, yesterday, yesterday was Monday, so first day back at work, you know, catching up, email stuff like that. But we also record video announcements at church on Mondays on our lunch break. So I load up my car at lunchtime, drive to the church. We record. I had a meeting with uh, our creative director and our pastor uh, right after that. Um, so. Just like uh, talking to the two of them about a couple of things. And then I left and headed home. Like I'd gotten up early that morning and gone to the gym because I knew I had those meetings and I wouldn't have time to work out afterward. So I'd already been driving around a little bit. Driving home, uh, driving down the, the main highway and start to turn onto the road I live on and the power steering goes out. And then the rest of the car goes out. And I, I kind of get it over to the side of the road. Thankfully, it was sort of a wide, wide turn there. And uh, 
Call uh, call my mom who gets in touch with my cousin who's got a tow truck to come out and pick it up for me. Thankfully, there was a diner right across the street so I could walk across the street and uh, and get some lunch. But uh, yeah, uh, they they took it and turns out that uh, had a blown rod blew through the engine on that one, destroyed it, and it had like leaked oil everywhere and stuff. So yeah. That car is now engineless, uh, and it's going to cost probably around three thousand dollars to replace the engine in it, which is about twice as much as what the car is worth. Right, that'd be kind of like my car need need yeah. an engine replacement. Yeah, so I was like, well, that's all right. You know, I actually had some friends offer to let me borrow a car while they're out of town. I was like, thank you guys so much, but I, I've got this other car that I can drive. No big deal. So. You know, I go about the rest of my day, work day. In the day, I leave to go. Uh, we do a homeless ministry, feeding the homeless here in Murfreesboro. And so I, uh, I leave to go to that. And I get, oh, maybe 10 miles down the road and the car overheats. I'm like, well, you know what? I, I let a friend borrow it a few months ago and it hadn't really been driven since then. I like started it up a few times, but I hadn't driven it. So I was like, you know, it may it may just need some coolant. So I'll just drive on to the gas station. Fortunately, I didn't realize I'd already passed the one gas station before you get into town. So drive another few miles, pull over and let it cool off. Drive another few miles, pull over and let it cool off. And I'm like, oh, I'm about a mile from the gas station. I could use the exercise. I'll just walk because there's no way I'm going to make it, you know. And I'd already texted my friends and been like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it. So anyway, go put get cool it put it in there you know let it run a little bit start driving down the road turn around start heading home it overheats yeah that's not a good sign yeah a friend of mine from church pulls up and took took a look at it and he's like i think it's your your water pump's gone out it's just it's not pumping i was like all right well that's not as bad as a blown engine so that's cool got it over to the church and my cousin came and picked it up then I got a call this morning that uh, it was more than just the water pump. That engine had blown a gasket and also needs to be replaced. I, I would recommend that you not get on your motorcycle or lawnmower for, <laughs> for a little while. Because these things come in threes. You know, maybe you ought to get like a little, uh, you know, find like a cheap $100 drone or something and fly it around till it burns up and be like done with the streak. My motorcycle hadn't been working for it. Uh, it. Stopped working about a week before I left. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, so I don't even have that. I literally have no vehicle right now. I have a bicycle. Like, you've already, it, these things come in threes, so you're done. You're good now. Just buy a nice, expensive car. That's the fix. <laughs> See, I'll be right once you buy an expensive car. Yeah, yeah. With a warranty. With a Probably. warranty. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, well, the the thing is, I you know, I just bought this house uh, at the beginning of the year and then went on the mission trip. And so... I don't have a whole lot in savings right now because I kind of used that up and was like, I came back and I'm like, all right, it's time to really like dig in and start start saving back up and rebuilding that. So I might have to cut into to some emergency money just to be able to get a vehicle. But, uh, you know, that's what that emergency fund is there for, though. So Yeah, that's true. But yeah, so I am I am on the hunt for uh, for a new vehicle. I did get in touch with that friend who's going out of town and they're going to let me borrow their car for uh, for about a week while they're out of town. So that'll help. Just get me get me by and then 
got a couple of people that live out this way who go to church with me so I can get rides with them um, so I can get a new vehicle. But I've also got like two uncles, three cousins, and a bunch of people from church all on the lookout. Good grief. Even my my sister uh, down in Florida is like, they're talking to people at their church and like they're on the lookout for a vehicle. I'm like, you know what? I'll fly down to Florida. I can... I got enough points on my uh, Southwest card. I can fly one way to Florida, get a vehicle and drive it back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if that's what I have to do. Also, it might make a fun little trip to go visit my family down there. So, but uh, yeah, so that's the, uh, the excitement that's going on uh, with me lately. It's, it's been, uh, <laughs> it's been interesting. I was, I honestly, yesterday was planning on talking about my trip. Uh, at this point in time, not uh, not this craziness. So, guys, next week I'll give you a brief update on where I am in the car shopping process and tell you about my trip. Yeah, um, but I also should have some photos. Uh, I'm going to probably try and post some to the podcast social media too of just things that I got to do. I took my camera with me, so I have 1,400 photos to go through and edit. Yeah. I filled. How many photos did the astronauts take on the way to the moon? I don't know. I mean, I feel like it was less than that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my CF card has more memory than they had on the entire ship, probably. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I filled a sixty-four gigabyte, a sixteen gigabyte, and a one twenty-eight gigabyte card with video and photos. Wow. Okay. I mean, I was gone for two weeks. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, and I could have done more. I mean, did you get like the Nintendo finger, like hitting the button on your camera so much? You know, like how you used to play Nintendo games, like on a Saturday or something. Yeah, yeah. And then like at dinner, you're sitting there and you can't hold your fork. Yeah. No, that that's the thing. I was very selective of what photos I was taking because I knew I had limited space. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially uh, after right. I filled up the first sixty-four car, sixty-four gig card, I was like, all right. I need to start really being like limited on this, but there was just, we were constantly doing stuff the entire trip. And so every time, every chance I had, um, also the media team let me come out on a few of their stuff. And so like, I got to get up on stage with, uh, with the band and take photos of them. I got some like amazing shots of like their guitar player, just like ripping it. It's awesome. But the media team and I, we, we really geeked out about our, our stuff. So it was, it was fun. All right, but I'll tell you guys more about that. We need to get into the episode. But before that... Saving money is hard, especially when you go to foreign countries and have to buy a thousand SD cards. <laughs> well, I was going to go with the, the new vehicle, but uh, that works too. Yeah. Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, his focus is on helping you to not only establish a real plan for moving forward, but to also take action on that plan so that you can create the life that you want to live, where you can go to Albania with a stack of SD cards <laughs> and not worry about you know b- limiting the number of pictures you take to only 27,000. <laughs> Guys. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. And with the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. 
And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. What that means is he's not here to sell you a product, but to guide you to a better financial situation. You can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face. And he also interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And he's got even more information up at levelupfinancialplanning.com. While a lot of developers are lucky enough to work on systems that don't take online payments, hey, hey, nearly every application developer needs to deal with sensitive data at some level. While your application may not be as attractive to hostile parties, it's unlikely that there is nothing of value in your application. I actually had a conversation about that today. If you're stuck dealing with online payments, you're probably already well aware that there are a lot of stringent requirements when you're dealing with credit card data, no matter what country you're in. While we're talking about PCI DSS requirements, which are specific to the United States of America, you'll find that these requirements are common across most countries. After all, best practices are generally applicable. Uh, That's part of the way they become best practices. Right. You'll also notice that a lot of this has very, very little to do with code. Uh, There's a reason for this. It takes a lot more than code to protect the system. Uh, In fact, a person could reasonably argue that code is a very tiny slice of what's required to actually protect sensitive data. And by the way, code is also a very tiny slice of what makes an application successful, just so you know. Um, People haven't picked that up yet. There's really a lesson here for all of us uh, who deal with sensitive data as part of our job responsibilities. None of our stuff works if the rest of the system is not set up well from a security perspective. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the requirements of the payment card industry data security standard or PCI DSS. I mean, we've been using the the acronym. Well, not acronym. But yeah, I know. I did that. It's good that we actually said that out. So, which specifies some best practices for securing systems that have access to payment card data. Note that there are a list of best practices compiled by companies in the payment card industry, but those aren't regulations. That said, they won't do business with you unless you follow these standards. When fraud occurs, these companies often end up paying the cost. So they will force your company to adhere to a certain standard. And that makes sense. Uh, Also, these standards are reasonable for protecting systems, even if you don't have credit card data on your system. After all, you don't want to expose your clients to things like identity theft or fraud for that matter. Right. And you'd be surprised how much data is actually sensitive when you sit there and look at it. And just before uh, we get too far on on that, these are my study notes uh, because we had a meeting on PCI DSS today that I was in. And so last night when I was coming up with the show outline, I was was like, well, I have to study this for work to be prepared for the meeting. And so I got a twofer out of this. So this is kind of my personal take on, on everything going through. Uh, and that turned it into a show outline. Which tend to be some of our best show outlines when you and I have done things like that. Yeah, well, you know. We're, we're more invested <laughs> in them, I've noticed. So, 
if it if it sucks, it's because I was lazy, and if it's great, it's because I was efficient. So <laughs> I like that. I get what it is. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. That's good. All right. So number one, install and maintain a firewall to protect cardholder data. You can massively reduce your system's attack surface and the ability of hostile parties to probe the system by putting cardholder data behind a firewall. Yeah. Now, this doesn't offer anywhere near perfect protection. Uh, it's part of you know defense in depth, essentially. Uh, but it does keep a lot of less sophisticated attacks at bay. Um, if you've had an, any machine on the open internet, you are well aware of just how much crap comes at it all the time. Or if you're not aware and you have such a machine... You need to you need to like set it on fire. <laughs> but basically what this does is it filters out a lot of that stuff so that a more sophisticated system further in can deal with more sophisticated attacks instead of being overwhelmed with noise. That's one of the great features of a firewall. Firewalls are an absolute must in general. This is one of the things I was having a conversation about today as to uh, where to to place a certain check. And I was like, well, the, the official one needs to be behind the firewall, but we can put it on the UI too so that we can like gray out the option, you know? I was like, but we don't need to rely on the UI. We need to rely on what's behind the firewall. Yeah, so, you know, in the internal systems. Yeah, yeah. You probably don't want any machine that you own to be exposed to the open internet. Just yeah, I don't. I don't even there? want my firewall exposed to the open internet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like I want a firewall for my firewall. Sometimes, yeah. uh, just because it it makes me nervous. Um, no dog, I heard you liked firewalls. <laughs> yeah, so I put a firewall on your firewall so you can. <laughs> yeah, but when you do this, you need to standardize this process uh, and document it. Because if something is not standardized and documented across your systems, you might as well not have it. Because at some point, you won't have it, and an auditor won't be able to prove that you do have it for the PCI compliance. Absolutely. Next. Don't use vendor supplied defaults for system passwords or other parameters. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's something that does need to be stated. Um, it really goes without saying that this is a bad idea, especially with default passwords when you're securing a system. Because yeah, those are literally on the vendor's website. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if it's in a sandbox. And even then, I, I would still be iffy about it, but absolutely not when you're in production. Yeah. Not only are they the same across a lot of devices, but like you said, they're on their website. Anyone can go and find them out. Yeah. Um, and, and this is kind of an older thing. You know, I mean, you'll see that on home routers and those kind of things. But, you know, there's a lot of devices, a lot of different software packages as well that have defaults that are set that are not reasonable you know, in, in production. And so you just need to kind of have that mentality of this always gets changed. Also note that this can include remote management features for things, you know, your network devices. So your routers, your firewalls, those kind of things. If you can manage them from outside, that needs to be locked down too. Uh, and you, you want to really secure what can get to that. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't leave a remote management interface open on the open internet, even if you do have a very strong password. Very true, very true. And don't just change the password, but make sure you change the username as well. Yeah, because that's, that's half of your complexity. Yeah. And, you know, also, you know, standardize and document this stuff for obvious reasons. Again, this is a compliance thing. It's, it's just the way these things work. 
the next thing you need to make sure is in place is you have to protect stored cardholder data. Data like this, you know, sensitive data, you know, personally identifiable information, credit card data, health information, mm-hmm. all that stuff never, ever should be unencrypted at rest, period. Yeah. Uh, nor should it be encrypted with whatever homegrown crap encryption algorithm that you cooked up in-house. You got some dude that, oh, I wrote an algorithm that does ROT13 on it. It's, it's safe now because nobody would guess we'd be that dumb. You know, like, don't do that. Uh, this requires industry standard, strong protection, and it requires that you keep up to date with the you know the latest cadence on that stuff. So as encryption algorithms get cracked because computers are better or because somebody finds a vulnerability, mm-hmm. you're going to have to keep up. Right. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons you do things like tokenizing and hashing. Mm-hmm. Um, although hashing to some extent, you know, it is breachable, right? Like there's yeah. rainbow table type stuff. And, but at least it makes it, it makes it hard enough where if you notice a breach, you can get that information out to the credit card company and they can, you know, invalidate all those cards and, you know, fix it before anybody loses everything in their, you know, in their account because there will be debit cards in the mix too, right? Yeah. Now, it's even better to not have data on your system at all. Bits that are not on disk can't be read from disk. Mm-hmm. That's fundamental fact of computing. So if you if that stuff is stored on a third party that has the compliance security in place and has all the data center stuff, that's typically better. Uh, if you can get away with that. Yeah. Um, now, if you are that, if you are that dude, <laughs> you're, you're going to have to lock things down tight. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, next encrypt transmission of cardholder data across open and public networks. Yeah. And I would argue any network. Yeah, I, I would too. If data is to be transmitted, encrypt it period. End of story. And just never assume that any communication channel in, is safe. Even if it's encrypted, I would assume it's not safe, but that's just me. Yeah. I'm not paranoid. Well, I mean, and that, <laughs> that's a really interesting problem um, because like, for instance, okay, you're you're transmitting over HTTPS, right? Mm-hmm. There may be cases where you want to encrypt and put on top of that. For instance, a case where the root certificate is compromised. There's countries on this planet right now that they have, you know, root CAs for their their country essentially, and everybody has to have those and trust them. Mm-hmm. And it's like that means your government can get hold of that data. Yep. And you know, not every government, believe it or not, is completely unsketchy. Really? Yeah. As 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 you know, the kids of my daughter's age say, some of them are sus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a fun game. Yeah, <laughs> cyber criminals can potentially access cardholder data that is tr- transmitted in clear text across public networks. Even if you think, oh, well, they would never know I'm, you know, sending it from here for a minute, you know, because for some reason you took a laptop out of the building and you have to get back in. Don't assume that. Like people snoop on Wi-Fi traffic. People can snoop on wired traffic. Mm -hmm. You know, they can compromise a device that's in between. There's all kinds of bad stuff that, you know, we really don't think about in tech, but it's all there. Yeah, that's so true. And this also needs to be an industry standard. Vetted encryption. Not something that you, you know, homebrew, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I feel like homebrew encryption at this point, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. It's, it's like homebrew meth. It's really not something you should do. 
you know, like you shouldn't do it anyway. But it's like this is worse. Is it like not homebrew meth? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's it like there's there's just literally no way that you're going to do this and actually secure it enough, right? Like there's a lot of advanced math. There's a lot of things you got to know about the operating system. Do not do homebrewed encryption. It's great for like tutorials and like understanding how stuff works. Mm-hmm. But at any kind of scale or anything where the stakes are high, you're going to get nailed. Absolutely nailed. And it also, this will not pass a uh, even a very cursory inspection by an auditor. Yeah. At all. That's true. That's true. So speaking of auditors, uh, also make sure and use antivirus and keep it up to date, uh, especially on the systems that have sensitive data on them. Mm-hmm. The deal here is that malware can and will get into unprotected systems over time. Just any system, even including one that you own, if you're not being careful, you know, it even happens on systems behind firewalls. You know, one screw up by an admin and a machine can be compromised. Yeah, that is true. And that that screw up may be going, you know, they go to Stack Overflow or somewhere similar to get an answer to a question. How do I, how do I get IIS to quit being stupid with app pools where they lock up, right? Because nobody's ever looked that up on Google this week. And they go to a site and some malicious ad pops up and it, you know, they happen to be running as admin and boom, your server's got malware. Now, need to bear in mind that malware running on a system often has access to most of, if not all, of what is in memory. And this includes encrypted cardholder details. Right, because you you read them out, right? And you decrypted it because you kind of need it decrypted to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you want you want your anti-malware tools to be uh, regularly updated and always active. And they should also always be logging in a manner that makes it as easy as possible to audit. So when they find a problem, you can say, okay, I, I know when this occurred. You know, I know what happened afterward. That way, if you do get a breach, you can trace it back. Yeah. Remember that your build pipeline libraries you use, NPM. <clears throat> yeah. And other machines on the network or even your internal staff can be compromised. And this really may be your last line of defense. Yeah. I mean, what would happen if an admin gets in financial trouble or is, mm-hmm. is you know, being threatened by criminals and puts malware on your server? That is a very realistic thing. It's called an insider threat. It happens. So you obviously want to be able to catch that. So next, develop and maintain secure systems and applications. Systems need to be patched and up-to-date in general, uh, including but not limited to operating systems, firewalls, other network hardware, application software, third-party software. You know, you're running MySQL on your network. It needs to be patched up. You can't just leave an old version of it out there forever. Yeah. This also applies to regular security audits of software during the development process. I mean, this includes things like repeatable builds, signed releases of software, and potentially sign-off of updated software before it's deployed into a production environment. Yeah, and while this is not often mentioned in this discussion, it can be really helpful to make sure that sensitive data is protected in memory while your application is executing. So modern operating systems do have APIs that make it harder to obtain sensitive data by just doing a memory dump. So basically what it does is it spreads out that string all over the place. Um, So it's not all in one place where it's easy to find if you get a dump. So next, you want to restrict access to cardholder data 
to a need-to-know basis. Role-based access control is used to allow or deny access to cardholder data systems. And honestly, you should set it to default deny. Right. And then only add access as needed. You know, if someone doesn't need access, the auto answer is no. Right. And they have to justify why they need access, which is the other part. Yes. Uh, You need to maintain a list of people who need that access for the sensitive data, why they need the access and what level of access they need to the different you know, bits and pieces there. The list needs to contain the roles, privilege level allowed, expected privilege level you know, after some change, uh, and the resources actually required to perform business operations on that list. So for instance, if you have, for some reason, you've got multiple different sets of this kind of sensitive data and they only need access to one set, then they don't, they don't get the access to the other one. Right. You just you basically want to limit the area that can be damaged. While it might not seem very important, list maintenance is critical, uh, both to avoid configuration drift in your access control system and to survive an audit. I mean, this is something that needs to be constantly monitored and updated. Yeah. And you, you want to be able to check it against what's actually happening in production, too, because people do go around processes. They find mm-hmm. ways. and oh, so. Yeah. When you get a configuration drift like that, now you need to start putting in policies to to keep that from happening. To enable this, you also need to make sure and assign unique IDs to each person with computer access and use them for tracking. So, you know, you and I would not share an account, essentially, which seems really strange, but you will see stuff, you know, in corporate environments. I've I've worked in places in fairly recent memory where everybody knew the pass everybody knew the main password that the owners of the company used on all the devices because it was the same password that that is a really bad idea from a security perspective because somebody could go in there and use that password and it looks like the owner did something yeah that's that's pretty scary basically if you don't know who's undertaking an action you don't have an audit trail it's absolutely required that you be able to tie an action to the person who performed it you know both for accountability and to make it possible to determine whether unauthorized access has occurred. This also means that you need to enforce password complexity and password rotation compliance. If passwords are easily guessed or are forever compromised once someone obtains them, then you don't have an audit trail. I don't know, I have I have mixed feelings about the password rotation because I, I because you end up writing it down. Yeah. Right? Like or using a pattern. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing is like the um, there's research that shows that that is not actually like yeah it doesn't actually help from uh, from a from a computer standpoint yes but from a human standpoint because you write it down because you you do those things to help you remember it it actually causes more compromise than than it helps and so there's I have mixed feelings about it. I do too. I think the window is the is the trick there, right? Like if you go, hey, every 90 days, you got to change your password or every, I'm trying to remember what it is at work. I mean, I, I've got to change it tomorrow. So um, you got something like, it's more frequent than I would like, but not yeah. super, super frequent. So yeah. But I mean, the main thing is, is like, don't have the same password that you had 15 years ago, right? Because, you know, it, it just... If somebody ever does guess it or they do, you know, rainbow table attack, you know, they're going to get in. And using the same password for mul- for multiple things is 
Yeah, it's also a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. But then again, if all of those things are rotating, how are you going to do that? Well, you use a password manager with one password that unlocks all the keys to all the kingdoms. So, yeah, it. we need something better than passwords. There are things that that help, but it's definitely a problem. Um, another another issue, too, is um, if you've got you know a payment console that you're interacting with and you're and, you know, you're in the shop, it's a encrypted connection, it's a known connection, it's, you know, whatever, you probably do want to have two-factor authentication, you know, on the payment console, but definitely uh, if it's from outside. Yeah. Just to prove that it, it you know, that makes password compromises harder. To, honestly, I would rather have two-factor authentication than overly complex password rotations. Yeah. Or like overly frequent, I should say, password rotations, because the two-factor is a lot more secure than password rotation. And I, I mean, we could honestly do an episode just on this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm going to throw that in our Kanban in just a minute. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's a good idea. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. So the next one is restrict physical access to cardholder data. I mean, we, we talked about, I guess, virtual access there with passwords, but if someone can physically touch the machine that contains cardholder data, you might as well consider the system compromised, especially if someone can walk out the door with the box. Yeah. I mean, I you see this in some small environments, right? Where, you know, yeah, they've got security on the doors. But, you know, if if a door was left open and somebody just walked in and left with one of the machines, what would happen? And if, if that happens to be particularly easy, that's definitely not good. Physical security is what makes the other security measures actually possible because it implies control of the machine on which the code is executing. If you can't control the machine, every other measure here is going to eventually fail. Um, now, I know there's like secure boot. And there's, there's, there's stuff that is getting into our machines where it's supposed to protect against a lot of these kind of things. And that's great. But again, you know, if the data is not encrypted at rest and it walks out the door, or even if it is encrypted at rest and you have some kind of, some kind of gap, it still could get compromised, right? Not only does this imply direct physical security of the machines, but also the security of the people physically operating the machine. Like if I can hit them with a $5 wrench, your $10 million security system doesn't really matter. That makes right. sense. I, I know with, I, I'm not sure with, with PCI as much, but I do know HIPAA when I worked in the hospitals, you had to have, especially for physical files, double lock and key. Right. And then when we went to EMR, electronic medical records, you had to have double lock and key on the machine. So not only did it have to be behind a locked, like in a room with a locked door, but it had to be like physically locked within that room. Right. Which made things really complicated for a while until we got things, because I was working at the hospitals when we had to start implementing EMR and it was not fun. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, there's just a lot of requirements just as far as, you know, Hey, some dude is authenticated. He's on the system right now, but he's got his back to an open door that goes to the street. Mm-hmm. That is not a good situation for security because now all you got to do is compromise that dude. And right. They're unprotected while they're on the system. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a, it's an implication. I think a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, it's just not something you really think about a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I worked at a company that dealt with a lot of very secure data and they were in a very, very sketchy area of town. Like you, it was okay during the day. There's good restaurants and stuff, but when it started getting dark, you got out of there. I'm out of the area of town. 
Yeah, you know exactly where they got. They got a great Thai restaurant down there too. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you you really do have to think about that because physical security for the people operating the system is part of the system security. Yeah, um, and that's why I put the anecdote about the five dollar wrench because that that kind of comes from um, I forget what the cartoon is it maybe XKCD probably they got some good stuff on there. Yeah, so you also. Uh, need to track and monitor access to all network resources and cardholder data. You know, so not only do you need to have the physical security measures in place to prevent unauthorized access to systems, but you also need to know if something has been accessed. So if somebody does get compromised and they start going into stuff, you should be able to detect that, that that happened. Uh, at the very least, you know, past tense going, yep, Joe over here, something happened and Joe got into 10 million records Saturday. You know, we need to know that. Yeah. If something happens in your system, you're very unlikely to notice while it's actually happening. More often than not, uh, you will find out after the fact. This means that you need a clear and quick way of figuring out what happened, when it happened, where it happened, and if you can, how it happened. Yeah. Now, for this to work well, PCI DSS requires certain standards of your logs in regards to the you know, information that's in those logs, as well as the physical security of the logs themselves. Because if somebody can go back and override the logs, you don't have an audit trail, therefore you're not secure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you notice how this stuff stacks. It does. It really does. Like, you gotta build it like that. No. You also want to make sure that your clocks are synchronized. Oh, yeah. As it's otherwise impossible to determine the order of events especially across multiple systems. And especially when you've got, like, here in Tennessee, we have two time zones within the state. And so even if all of your servers are within the state, you could have one in one time zone and one in another. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's probably why you want to use just one, you you want to use like GMT or something um, and then just convert for, you know, when you're doing things. But yeah, it, the the clock synchronization is very, very important because causality gets really tricky when time isn't reliable. Now, you also want to regularly test security systems and processes. And you know, so in addition to your regular logging of access to critical data and security changes, your system should undergo regular testing to make sure that it's actually up to date with the latest security practices. Um, if you're not in the security industry, these things change. I mean, we just had an episode on the changes in um, OWASP, what, a couple of weeks ago? And PCI is actually coming up with the version 4 stuff is coming out fairly soon. I'm not exactly sure when. And so there's other stuff they've added to this. And so we may have to do a follow-up episode there. I actually say a couple of weeks ago, we recorded a few weeks before I left, but it very well may come out right before this. I'm going to look really quickly. Yeah. So... <laughs> Speaking of not having your clocks synchronized. Yeah, it, it it's literally coming out the week before this. So we just had an episode on on that. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a few weeks ago when we recorded it, but yeah. Now, would you want to have a similar conversation about a security breach with the time discrepancy that we just <laughs> experienced? No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, that's why I said. Yeah. So this also includes regular security scanning by a PCI-approved scanning vendor for all external IPs and domains, along with internal vulnerability scanning. So they're actually going to go out and touch the machines and go, can I break into this? And that doesn't necessarily limit itself to just the machines that are in scope, right? They're on the same internal network. They still have some ability to cause problems. Yeah. 
And it goes without saying that regular application and network penetration testing is absolutely necessary to make sure that some small change somewhere hasn't opened up a huge hole. Like this is this is very key, especially anytime you're going to production. Yeah, or or just think about physical stuff, right? Like you think you've got a firewall plugged in, you know, and your cable comes off a you know the cable modem or the T1 connection or whatever you got and goes to the you know, it goes to the firewall and then it goes from there to you know whatever uh, routing infrastructure you got. What happens if somebody goes, oh, I need to test something without the firewall in place for some reason, and they plug the cable into the other thing, and you don't have a firewall and you don't know. Yeah, wow, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's. I mean, people are stupid at scale. It's frightening. Yeah, that's why you want to have. Very yeah, uh, you want to have some stuff for that to where you where you actually catch it. Uh, you'll also want to have regular file system diff checking on you know anything that you're you know regularly touching. Because you want to catch changes that might have otherwise gone unnoticed. So you're doing stuff like builds um, and, and pushing code out to the server. Uh, you you do want to kind of have some some differential stuff in there in addition to your normal workflow. Because a lot of times, like if you do an Azure DevOps, you can get around branch policies, for instance, that require approvals from certain people. You can turn them off and you know push something through. And, and especially somebody with admin access can do that you know, for an internal attack. So finally... Maintain policies for information security for all personnel. All security in the world won't help if the people in charge of implementing it don't know what to do. You know, you need to have policies in place to make sure that your team knows what is required of them and what needs to be done. Not related to security, but I had this conversation earlier today about, oh, well, we want to just apply this to everything we build. I was like, that's fine, but we need to put it in the acceptance criteria for everything we build because, you know, that way we will... No, it's like one little short line, just throw it in there for each one so we're not confused about it. Yeah, this, this practice would also include annual formal risk assessments to look for critical assets, threats, vulnerabilities, Changes to the system that maybe have opened up a new vector of attacks, a new you know, vector of risk, a new thing that may be under scope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically the idea here is, is is constantly, you know, not only making sure you're compliant, but also having systems in place that make it hard to drift from compliance. It also includes employee background checks and regular user training to keep people aware of potential threats and incident management when a problem does occur. Yeah. Like you need to know, like if your system gets breached, what are, what are you doing at a managerial level to put a stop to it? Mm-hmm. Or if there is an attack ongoing, you know, what what are the shutdown protocols to kill that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's it's just like, it, it, it's, it's like having a plan for if your house catches on fire. You know, some of the stuff is, hey, I don't make, you know, wallboards from, you know, gasoline soaked lumber right that's what some of these requirements are some of them are hey i want to have exits on the building more than one some of the requirements are hey i want to have a fire extinguisher and some of them are hey i want to know how i'm going to get out of the building if it catches on fire and and so like if you look at pci compliance like that that's really what they're trying to do Mm -hmm. it sounds like it's really onerous and it is but it has to be because if it isn't you know like everybody's getting compromised even though this is happening a lot um, it's not as bad as it could be. So, guys, 
PCI compliance is not easy. Uh, in fact, there is an entire, I would not even say it's a cottage industry at this point. It's a skyscraper industry around making it possible for companies to secure their payment processing systems. It's possible on your own systems as well that you're going to want these kind of protections, even if you aren't dealing with payment card data. While you still need to have real security professionals assessing the security system, there's really a lot of work to do for an enterprising software developer, even shy of that. Uh, you know, anybody listening to this podcast potentially could go, hey, this is a bad practice that we're doing right here. Why are we doing that? It is a whole lot better to find out that kind of stuff from a developer instead of from an auditor or finding it out from a hacker uh, is, is even the most expensive case. And if you can understand why these security precautions are in place, you'll tend to write more secure code just by default because you know how it can get breached. You know, and you'll think about systems in a way that is you know, more congruent with keeping them secure. Now, even if you're not actively involved in securing a system yourself, when you understand the guidelines required for PCI compliance, it will help you secure other important systems as well, uh, including you know, if you start your own company at some point, you know this stuff versus, you know, putting a new product out and then getting hit immediately. Um, so it can be very important for your career. That's pretty much all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.